Welcome to Conversations at Basecamp. I'm Noah. And I'm Kim. And we're the co-founders of The Nook Online, a private community that is a digitized and modernized women's resource group. Our content is designed to provide the universal core skills, confidence, and competence needed to advance and lead today and tomorrow. We believe that representation matters. On this podcast, you'll be able to hear some of the amazing conversations we have in our platform with an incredible array of diverse, empowered women. These conversations have inspired our own personal, professional, and financial lives and given us the confidence to step up and show up as our boldest, truest selves. We hope to spark fire in your soul, too, and help you on your journey to live on purpose and get in the driver's seat of your life. This is Basecamp for Women on the Rise. Join us. Step up. And while you're up there, reach down and bring another woman up, too. Hello. Welcome. We are so excited to have the lovely Dr. Sasha Hines with us today for a conversation about positive psychology. Um, We'll get into what exactly positive psychology is in a moment, but uh, to introduce you to Sasha, she has a bajillion credentials, uh, certainly not her first rodeo. Um, Sasha, a BA from Harvard, a PhD from Columbia, and um, as I said, this is not her first rodeo. She lives and breeds positive psychology. She's an expert in the field. She's also a mother of two, a recovering perfectionist, and um, there's so much we can all relate to with Sasha. So really excited to share this incredible conversation with you. Um, We will make some um, optional time for questions at the end for Sasha. Um, So if you have those questions, just pop them into the chat bar and we'll um, get to them at the end. But otherwise, just relax, have a cup of coffee and enjoy the conversation. Great. Well, thank you again, Sasha, for being here. Oh, man, I'm so psyched. I, by the way, I was just laughing with that memoir. I, I look like a telemarketer, but the, the sound quality is so much, <laughs> so much better. So with a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> we like good sound. So. Like we're going on a flight. I know. <laughs> so I, let's start at the very beginning. What is the difference between positive psychology and what most of us think of as traditional psychology? Because I think that's really new difference for most yeah. people. Yeah. And I think, um, and I've been in both worlds. So I, 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 I think when the, I think it's actually a really important distinction because um, positive psychology was really um, was sort of arised in the early, early aughts, late, you know, 1998, 1999. And it was really, I think it was actually in Martin Seligman, who at the time was head of the APA and it was his his presidential, he was president of the APA. And in his presidential address, he used this phrase, which I think originally was Maslow's phrase. So it's not new, but he said, we need to develop a positive psychology. And what he was trying to, so, and I, I think that in the context, it's important to understand, like he wasn't trying to say, we need a, a new psychology that has nothing to do with, you know, the tradition of the field. He was saying, no, we need to incorporate a positive psychology because in the latter half of the 20th century, psychology, because of funding and we had two major world wars happening in the 20th century. So a lot of government funding and a lot of attention was on 
disease disorder dysfunction, totally understandably. Now we call it PTSD. It was shell shock. A lot of, they, we had a lot of, uh, you know, psychological problems that we didn't know what to do with. Nobody knew how to deal with depression. People were being put in psych wards and given, you know, all sorts of uh, lobotomies and terrible treatments to do this. So um, a lot of funding was you know, they were really basing the psychological world on the medical model. So you're really focusing on acute disorder. And in 2000, Seligman said, you know, we need an, a positive psychology that's addressing what's good with life. Like, why do we want to live, right? What makes life worth living? And up until that point, you know, it just hadn't been the focus of, of psychological research. So um, it was sort of, you know, a call to arms to the community to say, hey, we, you know, all this research and all these papers are being written about anxiety, depression, personality disorders, et cetera, but we really, you know, and, and like negative outcomes, but we don't really know much about how to cultivate well-being, but isn't that what everybody like ultimately is looking for? So I really think it's important to understand that's like, you know, positive psychology was really, it's really a just sort of, if you think about like the full spectrum of human experience, it was just, hey, let's put some intention into studying the positive end of the spectrum. I think that when I spend a lot of time in my positive psych community, I think sometimes there's this idea like, you know, this has never been done before. We're renegades. This is all new. I'm like, no, there was lots of philosophers and, uh, you know, William James and all these sort of, you know, other precursors to this movement. Um, but uh, it's, it's really important to think, not think of it as like business as usual psychology against positive psychology, that they're somehow at odds with each other. It's just um, saying, hey, look, like the psychology in general should be studying dysfunction and function, right? It should be studying optimal human functioning in the same way that we're studying you know, when things go wrong. Yeah. I've heard you mention before, it's um, looking at how to go from good to great. So yeah. the, the general um, pathology view of psychology gets people from bad to good, you mm -hmm. know, like negative five to zero. Yeah. And then positive psychology is, okay, well, how do you live a life that's great? Like nobody wants to just be good. Exactly. And I think, um, and I think you can see an interesting kind of parallel between um, in medicine and in psychology as well. So I think up until this point, you know, it, which has shifted in the last 10 years, but even in medicine, the idea was doctors make you not sick. Mm -hmm. Doctors don't make you well, they make you not sick. And psychologists make you not mentally ill. They don't make you well. They just make you not sick. So it's the same idea. I think that there's a parallel between the two, which is, you know, um, I think positive psychology is trying to address, wait a minute, why are we leaving people at zero, right? Why are we leaving people at like, you're okay? Yeah, right. Because, you're okay. You're right, like you're fine, you know, like which like, right, it's the same thing, which is like, if you had cancer and then you are free of cancer, that doesn't mean that you're healthy. That doesn't mean that you're thriving physically, right? So 
I think that we are now beginning to see also in medicine that people are really addressing like the whole person and functional medicine and pre preventative care and all of these things that are happening in the in medicine. I think we're seeing a parallel also in psychology where people are saying, hold on a second, like the good life isn't about just not having depression. Right. That's so like, that doesn't make is, sense. Is the goal happiness should be attained by everybody? Is that what all of our goals should well, be? I think this is why positive psychology has been so important is no, because happiness is what we call in, you know, the psychological term for this is positive affect, meaning it's sort of positive mood or feeling good and positive emotions or, you know, pleasant feeling emotions um, are just one component of the model of well-being. So I think what the research has helped us understand is that, you know, uh, flourishing, like human flourishing is really a much more full bodied experience and it incorporates, you know, positive emotions is one aspect of it. But I mean, I work with a lot of people that are going after changing. They want to change their life. They want more out of life. They want to go after big goals and sort of see what they're, what, you know, lean into their potential. Um, anyone who's leaning into their potential is going to be feeling a lovely mixture of exhilaration and nausea, <laughs> right? So like, it's not going to feel amazing all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that positive psychology has helped us from, you know, give us a sort of evidence-based foundation for understanding, yeah, human flourishing doesn't always feel awesome. This is probably a lengthy question, um, but what's the difference between positive psychology and positive thinking? Uh, I, I think it's a really important distinction. Again, you know, the well-being model really is like, if the, there's sort of five major components. I mean, I, I think we could argue with some, you know, maybe add, incorporate some more, but we're always, with research, we're looking for parsimony, right? So we want to be able to explain a phenomenon in the most simple way possible. So the model for well-being, sort of the most accepted model at the moment for well-being is there's sort of five components. So one is positive emotion. So feelings of, you know, positive, happy feelings, um, engagement. So feeling um, that experience of flow or engagement. So you're so focused and engaged with what you're doing that you kind of almost lose your sense of self. It's like you merge with the activity that you're doing. It's a really important piece of, um, of uh, well-being. So that's positive emotion, engagement, um, relationships. So having positive relationships, I think that's just a cornerstone of the good life is having a lot of robust, um, reliable, wonderful relationships in your life. Um, then there's meaning, creating meaning and purpose. So you cannot have human flourishing without having a compelling why, mm -hmm. right? And then the fifth component is achievement. Um, and the caveat I would put to the, with achievement is it has to be an intrinsically motivated achievement. So I think it's um, very easy to chase well-being with achievement. So you know, achievement in and of itself is not going to create well-being. But people who self-report as high satisfaction with life, so really that's what we're talking about with like well-being means satisfaction with life. People that report high satisfaction with life, most of them 
right? Like a component of that is they're achieving, they're going after goals, they're, you know, creating and they're creating in their life, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, positive thinking is like just such a small little component of that. And I, I think a better way to think about I, I think positive thinking can get us into some kind of into trouble. So I'd like to call it more like effective thinking. So we know both know a lot of people in our lives, you know, women who look super successful seem to have it all, but they're actually really unhappy or unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the kind of question that we would should ask or think about asking or that you might ask a client of yours that you run into who's, you know, ha has it all and is the successful person that really feels un happy about yeah. the situation. Yeah. This is why I think the A in the model, the PERMA model of well-being, the A, the achievement piece of it, I think is, is uh, you know, a slightly controversial because I think um, my question to ask those women would be, why? Why is it, why are, do you feel compelled to achieve and to keep, um, you know, performing at a higher level or going after the bigger title or the bigger job or, you know, another accolade, um, you know, if that is fueled from sort of an, a source of not enoughness, like we're trying to fill this bottomless pit of unworthiness, it will never work, mm -hmm. right? So achievement is almost like ach achievement in the PERMA model is really an expression of well-being, it's not going to create well-being. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I see this happen. Like I, I, the image in my mind is like, we're running on the treadmill and the carrot in front of us is worthiness, right? And we're like chasing it so hard. <laughs> so I, I think that, and, and it's like, it, it does feel like a Pyrrhic victory every time, you know, you get, you get that exciting thing happens or you, you know, get the degree or you get the promotion and now you're in a new job and it, you, all of these things that were the the new house or the whatever you were telling yourself was going to make you feel good enough you get there and um it feels good for five minutes mm -hmm. and then you need another dopamine hit right you're like i need another achievement because you know the, the the like flood of not enoughness comes right back in so it has to be hearing, internal work. Yeah, okay, totally. I remember hearing um, <laughs> Oprah talk about it. She referred to it as the um, chasing the sheets, that when she first started um, the Oprah show, she went to, first started on TV, she went to someone's house and they had, um, they had bath sheets. And she was like, oh, when I'm successful, I'm going to get bath sheets. And then she got bath sheets and she was like, now I need, you know, 1,000 thread count Egyptian cotton sheets. Yes. And then I need 5,000 Egyptian <laughs> thread count. And it was like constant chasing till she had that epiphany of realizing it's got to be intrinsically motivated because otherwise I'm just constantly ch chasing that carrot that's getting, <laughs> it keeps getting moved away from me. <laughs> and I just thought that was such like a, it was a great little yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think it's so, you know, your brain, it's, it's partly why, you know, everybody struggles with this because, I mean, so you, this is why positive psychology and managing your mind is so important because you actively have to manage this because your brain is wired to recalibrate at whatever new level of success that you have. So it's totally normal that this happens. You know, you, you look at like you achieve this new level of 
uh, success and it feels very exciting initially. And then, you know, three, three months later, six months later, it's sort of like, ho-hum, this is the new normal. And your body, your, you know, your mind, <laughs> your, your whole uh, system is just now recalibrated to a new set point. So then, right, so you're like, okay, now I need another, right, there's another rung of the ladder to climb. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's, there's lots of ways that you can help your mind kind of, you know, a, deal with this problem of, we call it hedonic adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so on that note, you've talked, I've heard you talk before about your thoughts are optional. With that being said, how can we manage our mind if our thoughts are optional? What does that mean? I think this is like a concept that to me just it like it, it blows my mind every day. Yeah. I'm not required to think any thoughts. I make them all up. Some of them feel very real, but they're all made up. So, I mean, especially I think if you're a student of history and you think about things in the cultural context, like what does it mean to be a good mother? Like we've made it up completely. If you ask someone 300 years ago what a good mother is, and like has nothing to do with what being a good mother is today, right? So um, we all have this, like we've all kind of collectively agreed on some basic beliefs, but they're all made up. And so, you know, I, I was I say to my clients, I'm like, there is a buffet, you know, of available thoughts and we're like, yeah, I'm going to pick up like not smart enough and definitely not funny enough and you know, whatever, right? Not, don't have enough talent or they're better than me. This is like, they're, all of them are available. And we're like, yeah, I'm really going to go for that. Those ones seem good. Let's, let's pick up those. <laughs> like, you don't have to. I, you're under no obligation to think that you're not good enough. Like, Yeah. I think that's mind blowing for most people out there. <laughs> it is. And it's also so, to me, just a, a, like an endless source of fascination that despite the cognitive awareness that they're completely optional, like, mm -hmm. first of all, you can just poke holes and not, un by the way, not enough is like at the, it's at the end of the thread for most people. So you can walk around and be like, I know you don't feel good enough because <laughs> that's kind of the deal, right? So you can feel like you're in good company, but it's just, it's such an easy thought to poke holes in. I mean, what's the metric? Who's the judge? How are we deciding? Yeah. It's completely subjective and it's a constantly moving target, right? Yeah. So, um, but what I, I find sort of like endlessly interesting is the fact that despite knowing that, I, it's like we all want to walk around with our little lovey of like, you know, but they don't really know that I'm not good enough. I'm fooling everybody, right? It's like, it, it's completely optional. You just could decide right this minute that you're done with it. Right. So on that note, then, you know, our mission at The Nook is to really get women in the driver's seat of their lives. So making choices that they own, it's not by default. They've really made those choices consciously. Mm -hmm. What um, would you say, what are the things that women do in their mind that get in their way? And what are those little things that you would encourage them to try, like one little step that would crack that door open to shift to get in the driver's seat? Um. I mean, I think the biggest source of everybody's suffering, um, and I, I don't know that, like, I don't, this is not, I don't really know 
well the science on gender differences, but I do think that there is, I mean, there is research um, on differences in men and women in terms of ruminating. Um, women tend to ruminate more than men do. And I don't know biologically why that is the case, but there certainly is a gender difference with that. So anyway, but I, the, you know, the source of our suffering is, you know, what I call thought errors. So believing that the external event or the, the sort of reality or the facts of our life are causing our emotions. So something happens, you didn't get the promotion or, um, you know, your colleague gets recognized and you feel like you didn't or whatever is the, you know, the thing that's happening in, in the world, in your reality is you believe that that's causing you to then like feel bad, right? Or disappointed or angry or irritated or frustrated or resentful or whatever the emotion is, but that's never actually what's happening. What's actually happening is there's a thing that happened you interpreted that thing, you had a thought in your brain, an image or a sentence in your brain, and that image or sentence in your brain created a feeling. So the things in our life are always neutral. And by neutral, I don't mean good. I mean neutral. I mean, you can, you know, you cannot get the promotion. You could feel many different things. You could have a thought that makes you feel disappointed. You can have a thought that makes you feel angry. You can have, you know, a thought that makes you feel resentful or you can, whatever, right? Um, you can have a thought that makes you feel motivated. Right. Right. So uh, what I mean is it's like a blank slate to some extent, it's like you can decide what you want to make it mean mm-hmm. um, always. And I think this is the source of everybody's suffering is this mistake, like, misunderstanding that they assuming that the thing that's happening is what's causing their feelings. Because when you're in, when you're believing that the external events of your life are causing your feelings, which is by the way, a hundred percent how it feels, right? (laughs) For me, it's like, oh, email from school that they want me to come to like a two hour event. Like they're ruining my life. Right. And I'm feeling so resentful. I'm like, I'm a working mom. Why are they expecting me? I have a whole narrative about it. Right. And now I'm like all upset and I am utterly convinced that it's that thing that's causing me to feel so irritated. No, like other people got that same email and had a very different reaction than I did. Right. They're like delightful. So thrilled to go to I don't know. Right. So um, when I'm believing that this external thing is creating my emotions, I'm powerless, totally powerless. I am at the mercy of whatever happens to be, you know, the issue du jour. So when you have a client who is really feeling like a victim of these emotions that are coming in and all of these external circumstances and really, um, you know, just feeling angry about all these things that are happening to him or her. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing you say to like start to change that mind? Because obviously it's now it's like, we need to change how you react, right? What's, what do you do as what's, what's going from like being powerless to, to actually right. taking you, back some power? Yeah. How do you yeah. help people take power back in this situation? I think the first step, cause you can't wrestle with people on this. Cause they like, it's so funny that someone be like, I'm, you know, I mean, something will happen. They'll be like this, they, you know, they don't like a colleague of theirs and they'll be upset about it. And I can't wrestle with them on this idea. I'm like, no, this, there's, you know, like I, 
I don't know if I can swear <laughs> with you guys, but like I had a client yesterday who was telling me at, at work, she's like, my boss is a D bag is what she said. And I, and she's absolutely convinced this is a fact. I was like, you know, that's not a fact, right? Like that's just your opinion. And she's like, no, it's a hundred percent a fact. Everybody in the office would agree with me. And I was like, okay, but would his mom agree with you? She's like, fine. Maybe, maybe his mother doesn't think that thought. But what I helped her see is that when I took her through the model that I used with clients, so the, ex the external event was he had said, he had given her some feedback. Okay. And then her thought was, this guy is a jerk. Right. And then when she, and I was like, well, when you believe he's a jerk and you're sitting in his office, how do you feel? And she's like, I feel extremely irritated. Like, makes sense, right? Me too. I would have the same reaction. When you're irritated, what do you do? Because all of our emotions generate our actions, right? So that all our emotions are just information that guide our actions. So it's like, if we didn't feel any information, if we didn't feel emotions, we would literally not know what to do. Like our emotions are sort of the you know, like they're like, turn right, turn left. Like they tell us what to important. do. Yeah. They're very important. So she's feeling extremely irritated. And I was like, well, when you're irritated, what do you do? If I had a video camera, what would I see you doing? And she's like, well, you know, she's like, I have like, you know, a resting bitch face. She's like, she's like, you know, kind of gets snarky. She's like, my arms are crossed. And she then admitted, she's like, well, I also sort of don't listen to him. Right. She's like, listen, she's doing like a, yeah, 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 yeah. But she's not listening to anything you say. Okay. So then I was like, all right, well, what is the result of those actions for you? And she, and she was like, I don't know. I'm just irritated in his office. And I was like, no, you are being a jerk. <laughs> right. Right. I was like, imagine someone else hanging out with you and you're giving that face, crossing your arms, not listening to them. How are they interpreting that behavior? And she was like, you know, ah. <laughs> so I think the first step is really when someone begins to see, oh, when I have this belief, which is optional, I, I'm, I'm like, you're totally entitled to think he's a jerk. I just want you to pay attention to how you show up when you believe that thought. It's not serving you at all because the whole thing that was happening was that she was feeling uncertain about her job. And I was like, are you creating more or less uncertainty when you show up like that? Right. So she was beginning to see how she's actually a lot more in control of what's happening than she thinks she is. Right. Right. And it, while it feels good for three seconds to be victim of, of something where you're like, you know, they're just a jerk and what can I do? You know, like I'm at their, the mercy of this maniacal boss. It really doesn't, it's like, it leaves such a terrible hangover because you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. When and you, so, yeah. When you watch, I mean, in the past, I've seen colleagues that sort of spiral down by that kind of thought process of like, it's always, you know, my colleague is treating me poorly. My boss is treating me badly. And it does nothing to improve the situation by sitting and wallowing no. in those thoughts. 
No. I mean, I think like having a sort of, you know, victim mentality about life, which is essentially just believing that the external events are causing your feelings. That's what it means. You're at the mercy of life. Right. I, you know, it's like, um, it's really like indulging in, it's like having a food binge, right? It feels really good in the moment. And then it feels horrible afterwards, right? Because it feels like relief in, in the moment because you're like, nothing I can do, right? So you feel the sense of relief for a hot second. And then you're left with a life that is totally out of your control, mm-hmm. which feels awful, right? right? Yeah. I mean, psychologically, that feels terrible not to have, not to feel that you have autonomy. Yeah. So I, I love this idea of kind of taking back power by recognizing your thoughts are optional. Mm-hmm. Are your, if your thoughts are optional, then is the next step in the hierarchy that your feelings, you get to then choose how you feel as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that this is, you know, you get to think on purpose and you also get to feel on purpose, right? You can act, and there's so much, I mean, I will not go into the weeds here on this, but there's so much cool emerging research on emotions that what we used to think even five years ago that there was sort of, you know, basic emotional circuitry in your brain and it it would just get triggered. Um, I don't know if you've seen that Pixar movie Inside Out. Like it has like the, the little animated, like there's insider brain, there's joy, there's anger, there's fear, but that's actually not at all how emotions work. There is no emotional circuitry in our brain. It's all an interpretation based on all sorts of sensory input and past experience. So each emotion that you're feeling is like something that you've constructed. It's a prediction of what makes the most sense. So that's why, you know, especially if people have had trauma, like that's why it's so important because then your brain is predicting, like if you've had threat a lot as a child, then your brain predicts threat. Right. right? So, um, but anyhow, what we're realizing about emotions is that your emotions are built too in your brain, which I think is so cool. Um, And really, you know, what you want to think about is what would I need to feel today? What emotion would I need to like turn the volume up on to do the things I want to do, right? So you, in some way, I would like to have my clients do the model in reverse. Like what's the result I want to create? What are the actions I would need to take to create, you know, the highest propensity of getting that result? What was, what would be the emotion I would need to feel to generate those actions? And then what would I need to practice thinking to dial up that emotion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're really get, then it sort of shifts all your energy into like, oh, I get to create my experience today. Yeah. Yeah. I I heard this um, way of kind of paraphrasing that of you just get to change the channel. You know, if you don't like the thoughts in your head, if they're not productive, change the channel and it sets in motion this whole other pathway of helping you get to the result that you're after. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievably freeing. I also, I also love like just being aware of you have control, but also thinking, you know, the way that somebody else shows up in the room, they're being a jerk. There's so many reasons behind that. And have nothing probably yeah. to do with you. Nothing. So even just acknowledging that it's like, wait, why am I being triggered by that jerk who probably is not being triggered by me? First yeah. of all, 
Right. And, right. Well, then that, but of course, like the reason that we get all bent out of shape and upset when other people are having their own emotional reactions is that we make it mean something about us, which then of course makes us defensive. Yeah. Right. It's like now we have to hate them because we're, you know, it's, it's some like personal indictment to right. us or like, how dare you? So now I have to be mad at you. But if it never means anything about me, I don't have to be mad at you. Yeah. I don't have to expend any of my energy in that, you know, worrying about that. I get to focus my energy on what's the result I want to create today for me. I have a question. Um, Is the goal in, in the work that you do, is the goal optimism over pessimism? Um, no, yeah, no, yes and no. I don't love labels because I think what I think this is what women do. Women do this way more than men, for sure. <laughs> men just, I don't know what's going, I mean, it's really interesting with their brain, but I think there's so much less like self-recrimination and self-criticism that goes on in a man's brain than it is in a woman's. <laughs> like, it's very fascinating. It's like, who knows whether this is sort of culturally uh, inculcated or also a biological difference. But um, what women do and my clients do is they'll then, you know, send me messages and with their practice, I'm like, okay, go off and you're practicing your thoughts. And they're like, it's not working. I'm not doing it right. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're doing it perfectly, right? Your brain, these thoughts feel very real. And it's like, you wouldn't go to the gym and imagine that you're going to be, you know, uh, like a muscle, a bodybuilder after doing three reps of curls. Like nobody has that expectation, but for whatever reason <laughs> with this work, they're like the next day, they're like, I'm not feeling better. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> like, right. Because the neural pathways in your brain take time to develop. Right. And so every time you choose a different thought, every time you remind yourself like, oh, right, that's just a thought. Like I'm, I'm thinking the thought that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm thinking the thought that I'm going to get found out as a fraud. And like, it's just a thought. And today I'm committed to practicing this, right? Like you have to actively do that. Um, and I think that if, when, I, when we make it into like positive thoughts and negative thoughts and optimism and pessimism, it then sort of, you know, creates these, these categories. I think that women then will like punish themselves. Like I was being too pessimistic or I was had too much negative thinking. I'm like, how do, what, like, where is there any rules on what's the appropriate amount of anything? The question is you want to just, I, I mean, I really, as I said, I think, you know, I really talk about this as effective thinking. You always want to keep like, what's the result that I want? What's the thought that's going to get me there? And like, I, you know, especially with, with money and for women and making more money. And I asked my clients, like, like the, I mean, I think this is an example of effective thinking, you know, they'll say, I'm like, why do you want to make more money? And they're like, I want to make money so I can be more comfortable in life. Right. I'm like, okay, well that is not going to work because the process of making more money and, uh, you know, achieving more in your career and getting promoted is going to be uncomfortable as hell. Yes. Okay. So if the goal is comfort, it is dead on arrival. Yeah. Yes. So, So, um, yeah. Well, I know you're not a fan of goal setting. So, Mm -hmm. so this seems like you're getting into that here, but tell us, tell us why, what is wrong with that goal of comfort versus 
So I, I'm, I, I am a fan of goal setting. I love goal setting. I think you have to be very like, I mean, I, I give my clients like a goal setting book. It's like 50 pages long. They're like, what is this? I'm going to set a goal. I'm like, uh-huh. It's like, it, it requires a lot of work to set a great goal. It's, but I, what I don't like is I think what people do is they just sort of arbitrarily be like, okay, I'm going to set this goal. And they don't really think through. Um, and, and I think this is a pitfall. And there's actually some very interesting research on this of pitfall of, op, you know, sort of optimistic or, pes, uh, sorry, optimistic or positive thinking that um, when we have a positive fantasy, it actually lowers our um, blood pressure, which demotivates us, right? It's like having a glass of wine. So um, I'm, you know, I'm all about like vision board and planning your future and being intentional. But when you're pot, when you're living in a positive fantasy, it's, it's like a giant dopamine hit that lets you off the hook. And you're like, someday I'm going to do this. And then you get to sit back and be like, ah, I feel so awesome. Cause I'm imagining my incredible life in the future. Right. So, but what physiologically it actually lowers our blood pressure. So it becomes demotivating and what they in, you know, um, the, uh, Gabrielle Owentogen who's at NYU and she's done so much interesting research and she's German. So she was, she's moved to the U S and she was so fascinated by this like American obsession with thinking positive. It's just like, well, this is so weird. We do not do this in Germany. <laughs> This is not how we roll in Germany. And what she found was that um, they had one, it was a study on weight loss and they had a cohort of women. And what they found was the women who were just had a positive fantasy about what their life was going to be like when they lost weight, ended up losing much less weight than the women who were very realistic about how difficult it was going to be to lose weight and actually plan for it. So they would, you know, they were in their journals, they were writing like, okay, I have a friend coming to town this weekend. We're going to want to go to all these restaurants. We're going to want to order, you know, all these things. How am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? Right. So they were anticipating it being difficult. And so they had to think on purpose and practice thoughts that were going to get them the result that they wanted. But that wasn't positive thinking like, this is amazing. This is going to be so easy. This is going to be so fun. I'm going to love it, right? It's like, no, you're not going to love it when your brain is giving you an urge to eat the dessert and you're telling yourself, we're not doing that today. Your body is going to rebel, Yeah. right? Your brain is going to rebel, but it feels like you're going to feel it in your entire, an urge is going to like roll over you in your entire body. So on average in this cohort, the women that, um, you know, what we call, they said, an implement, uh, um, uh, implementation intention. So they, they anticipated what was going to be the obstacle and they planned for it. On average, that group lost 24 more pounds. Significant. Wow. significant. Wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. I love even just the simple distinction of it's effective thinking rather than positive thinking because effective yeah. thinking already tells you like, well, there's steps involved and it's not mm -hmm. just arbitrary thinking. It's much more right. intentional, I think, about yeah, putting yourself in the driver's seat of this is my goal. What do I need to do to get to my goal? The little steps. Yes, exactly. Just like, like oh, the universe will take care of it. And totally. And I mean, I think starts next year. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's not, I don't, there's not a, a word in the, in the English language yet that describes the emotion that I think, you know, 
the emotion of going after a big goal, it's, it's not awesome all the time. It feels like a weird, you know, it's like a mixture of dread and fear and overwhelm and excitement. It's like all wrapped up in one thing. And what happens is that this is why, you know, people don't, they'll set a goal and then they blow it off is because the minute they feel, because the goal, when they set it, they're like, oh, it's going to, they're, they're imagining it's, you know, in their imagination, like, oh, I'm going to feel so good when I achieve this thing. But the process of achieving it, it's like, going to be a whole lot of not Mm -hmm. feel, you know, positive feelings and like difficult feelings, right? You're going to be feeling frustration, lots of frustration, right? You're going to be feeling shame. You're going to be feeling embarrassment. You're going to be feeling fear, like, sign up for it because that's what you're going to oh, actually yeah, be feeling, yeah, right? Yeah. Anytime you're up leveling, that's what you're going to actually feel. So if you're, if you're only, if your why is like, oh, I'm just going to feel so good when it's, when I've accomplished it, you're not going to get very far. Because yeah. the minute it starts to feel bad, you're like, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> Go no, thanks. That, um, expression you said at the very beginning of the conversation about the, the hedonistic kind of treadmill where for some reason we've been conditioned to expect that we are to feel good all the time, which is totally wackadoo if you think about it. And it's so the second it's, something starts feeling bad, so many people just say, oh, it doesn't feel good. I'm running away. But I think there's a, that intentionality of, okay, but this is moving me towards my goal. There's going to be grit. There's going to be some gruesome moments, but it's moving me. And it, it doesn't, and that feels good. And it's that bad. feels the good. Progress. Yeah. Knowing yeah. I'm intentionally right. stepping on some hot burning stones to get yeah. to the other side. And I think that the distinction is important because I do believe that you, you know, you think, you think and feel on, you can train yourself and, to, you know, more often than not to think and feel on purpose. It's a practice. So am I on purpose feeling, you know, am I going to on purpose feel like dread? Like, no, I can manage my mind. So I'm minimizing like how intense the dread feels. That's true. But I think that the, the, the larger, you know, more important piece of this is all of your emotions are important and all of your emotions, like on a range of pleasant to unpleasant, like they fall somewhere on the spectrum of like unpleasant to pleasant and highly activated to not, right? On two different dimensions. That being said, there's a difference between allowing there to be like a nine in, you know, a 90 second wave of fear. I mean, like, okay, like I'm feeling fear, but when you actually sit and allow yourself to feel the experience of fear, like it's not anything worse than your feeling on the spin bike really isn't it's just a sensation in your body so then you become more willing to experience the full spectrum of your emotional repertoire and they don't feel as overwhelming because what happens is i think for people is they start to feel shame it's like a hot wave that comes over them right and they're like oh this is terrible terrible I wanted to go away. So then they want to distract themselves from feeling that feeling. And so instead of just feeling the clean 90 second wave of shame that they're feeling, they feel what I call like dirty emotion, right? So it's dirty shame. It's like they're feeling shame and now they're feeling fear about the shame. 
and then they feel shame about having shame, right? It's like, then they layer all of these other things. So it's like the emotional experience becomes, it does kind of mushroom into something that's, you know, it's, it, I think the, the object is to be willing to just experience that sort of full range to experience it in a clean way, as opposed to having it sort of, you know, there's like dirty pain and clean pain. Right. right? So the goal is we want to feel clean pain. Like life is full of, you know, difficult things and we're intended to feel negative emotions or, you know, challenging emotions, difficult emotions on, you know, we're we're intended to feel them for good reason, Mm -hmm. but we don't have to make those feelings mean anything more than I'm just, this yeah. is what's happening right now. It, yeah. From personal experience, once you, whether it's shame or fear, like acknowledge and move through those things, it actually feels really good to be like, oh, well, I, I've survived this. Like, it's okay. I made it through the other side and yes. I'm here and I actually feel really good about it. So I think this is, I think that's such an interesting point. And what I find so fascinating is I, a lot of people might, and I used to be like this with just what, say, say to me, clients will come to me and they're like, I just feel anxious all the time. I'm just like, I, and, you know, I used to say, I used to say this, I'd be like, anxiety is my jam. Just how I roll, just constantly anxious all the time. And what I realize is that, you know, what anxiety actually is, anxiety is a fear, you know, it's, fear or a um, concern that you are not going to be able to actually manage the feeling or emotion you anticipate to feel. Mm-hmm. So I think of anxiety, it's like this crusty layer over all your actual emotions. And anxiety is like, I don't actually have co- a sense of competence that I can f- just experience my emotions for what they are. So instead of feeling shame, I'm just going to feel anxious. Instead of feeling grief, disappointment, I'm just going to like have this hum of anxiety all day long. That's so interesting. I've never heard that, but I totally can see that. And then that's, then you're just living in that anxious state and that's kind of terrible. Because there's really nothing to be anxious about. Like it's really fascinating because you're going to feel grief. Like that's a guarantee in life. Everybody is going to experience heart-wrenching grief in their life. And by the way, you do not want a life where that doesn't happen. Can you imagine having something happen to one of the most important people in your life? And you're like, yeah, I'm just not going to go there. Right. No. Like to fully dive into love and joy and exhilaration and all of these wonderful, yummy feelings that feel like diving into a warm bath, right? Or, you know, to have that experience of life on the razor's edge side of other side of that is the loss of those things, right? It's like why when you have that moment where you're reading with your child in bed and their smell and their snuggle and their warmth against you and they're saying, you know, you get an, I love you, mom. And you have this moment and you're like, oh my God, this is truly the greatest feeling on earth. And then what happens, right? There's like this little thing in your head. It's like, what if this is the last time? What if something happens? What if like, I never hear this again, right? So to be able to fully experience, you know, the full spectrum of you know, positive emotion, we also have to be willing to experience the full spectrum of negative emotion 
or we're living in this little like emotional repertoire of like, you know, this little box. It's pretty mundane. I mean, it's like pretty boring, right? So, you know, I think uh, anxiety is just like not feeling that you're competent enough to handle the gut-wrenching grief and that you're not going to be able to handle the shame of the speech being a bomb, Mm -hmm. right? Or you're not going to be able to handle the embarrassment of a flub that you make or uh, for me, like research that I've misattributed or misquoted or something like that, right? And then I'm going to like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, the psychological community is going to go like pick at my (laughs) front door, right? Like my, this is where my brain goes. So, right. It's like, oh, and then my anxiety is just like my angst that I won't be able to handle that moment if it ever happens. Right. Right. So anxiety is such a thief because the more you get practice actually just sitting with your feelings and being like, okay, fear, here's where I feel it in my body. Like it's a buzzing feeling in my chest or shame. It's like this big rush of hotness in my cheeks or whatever. Once you get, you're like, okay, I can actually experience this wave of feeling. Once you know that you can handle that, there's literally nothing you can't do. Yeah, totally. Right. You can, that's like the only barrier between you and your achieving your dreams is an unwillingness to feel certain emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow. Love that. So before um, I ask my final question, I wanted to know if anyone in the audience has um, a question or questions for Sasha, just feel free to pop them in the chat bar. Um, we'll give you a couple minutes to write those questions in and um, I'll just add to that. You know, I, I've, started feeling this tightness in my chest sometimes at night. And so I'll sit and think, Hey, what am I feeling anxious about? And it's like lifting the lid into this box of scary things. And I think, okay, that's what I'm feeling anxious about. Once I've identified it, then I can say, okay, well, what can I do? So I'm not afraid of that thing. Okay. I could prepare more for that thing. So I feel less afraid and I feel viscerally my anxiety lifting. And it's, yeah, really kind of recognizing, okay, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm thinking and I'm feeling a certain way and looking into that lid of what's inside that box. And I can either just, yeah, I'm not going to feel that right now and put the lid back on the box. <laughs> I'll deal with that tomorrow. But at least just giving my, my brain time to acknowledge it as opposed to just lying there in this wallow of terrible. anxious, which is yeah been done for many years in my life. Oh and, yeah. I mean, I, that's it. That I, I, Absolutely. I mean, my, and it's so funny because I think it was also sort of a family narrative too, because my father used, when I was a child, my dad, who was an entrepreneur and, um, you know, and very energetic guy, but he would always talk about his floating anxiety. And so I then was like, oh, I, I have it too. I got, I inherited the floating anxiety, you know, as if that was like a real thing. <laughs> it's like, it's not a real thing. It's not a real thing. It's like, no, it's just, it, it's, you know, I, anytime I'm feeling like, oh, you know, feeling that real hum of anxiety, which doesn't never feels good. It's always because I'm worried that something is going to happen. And that the, that experience of the thing that I imagine is going to happen is going to be too hard for me to handle. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not going to be able to bear it. Yeah. 
right? Like that's really what's going on. And then you can, once you start to recognize this, you're like, okay, first of all, the thoughts that I'm thinking are probably fairly irrational because mm -hmm. that's what our brain does. Most of it's total nonsense, right? It's also probably very unlikely to happen, right? I had, I have one client who's like been very successful for 30 years in her career. And then this January, the, she, you know, she said, this is the pattern that it starts slow in January. And then she always like ends up having a good year, but it's, it always sort of starts slow in January. So her, she's having her slow January and she's like, no, no, my brain, like, this is the year. This is the year. It's all going to fall apart. This is the year that, you know, I'm not going to pull it out. This is the, I'm like, right. But, and, and I was asking her like, why is it so hard for her to just believe like, no, this is how it, you know, this is how it always happens. It's going to be um, like, this is, this year is going to be great. I'm like really looking forward to it. Gonna, right. And she's like, well, it feels delusional to me. <laughs> right. I think this is what people think. They're like, oh, but that, like that excited about the future thought seems delusional to me. I'm like, yes, but can we recognize that you imagining that this is the year that the other shoe is going to drop when you have 30 years of evidence to the contrary is equally delusional? She was like, oh yeah, you have a good point. <laughs> I was like, right. It's totally irrational. It makes zero sense that like, the, you know, that this trend that's been, you know, oh for 30, you know, 30 for zero or whatever, like 30 times it's gone that way, zero times has it gone the other way that there, this is the year that it's going to be like drastically different. Well, like the probability is, you know, not that's, probability is on the side of, it's going to be great. This year is going to be great. Yeah. It's not making it <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to get in touch with Sasha through the community. Um, Sasha's also going to be teaching a course, um, for six weeks, not just one hour to pack yeah. in the entire PhD of psych right, right. positive psychology into um, six weeks, we'll have with Sasha on how to live on purpose, which will be kicking off um, in the middle of summer. I, for one, am super excited about that. Um, yeah, me too. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, it's been Sasha. an awesome conversation. I, um, I just love this idea of managing your mind and how much power you can have in your life from mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, daily practice because your brain wants to regress to the mean. So you have to practice it daily in the same way that we go to the gym and right. That's the same work. Yeah. Yeah. And it is daily that. work. <laughs> I'm glad. Keep us posted. We'd love to hear your experiences of um, recognizing this uh, thoughts are optional and what thoughts you pick from the buffet. Let us know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And just <laughs> notice which ones that you've just, you've just, Somewhere along the line, you picked it up and you're like, you know what? I'm really kind of done with this. Like, don't really need to believe this anymore. Oh, we do have one question. Um, do you have advice on how to find your way and drill down on purpose and goals? Find your why. Oh, sorry. Find your why. On to find your why. Um, That's a big one. Yeah. I, my main advice was like, don't make this a sacred cow. You do not need to go on a three week, you know, top of the mountain retreat to figure out what your why is. You can start with something. It doesn't matter to anybody else. Like your why could be, I mean, literally anything. Um, I think that we have this idea that our why has to be very noble, you know, like it's something that's like a vision, what, I don't know, like some, you know, manifesto that you would like put on your, 
you know, the front of your website or something. It's like, no, sometimes your why is like, you know, just because you want to see what you're capable of or your, you know, your why could be that you want to like buy a home. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't have to be noble to anybody else, but it has to be compelling to you. And the way you find the degree of, you know, like how compelling is it to you is checking in with your emotional system. So like, does it feel like, yeah, that's exciting to me? Or is it kind of like, yeah, you know, like, I think this is what people do with meaning and purpose. They're like, I have to have some, you know, meaning and purpose that, that, you know, I could share like in a homily. No, you don't. And that's you know? so overwhelming to think yeah. about. I mean, who, there are very few people out there who have that real sense of like, yes. Like my why right now is I, with the model that I use with my clients, like I am, what gets me going in the morning is I'm like, I'm pretty convinced that you can kind of create whatever result you want. And I want to go out and prove that. Mm -hmm. So in my life, I'm like trying to clean up areas and there's lots to clean up, you know, yeah. like you tackle one area and you're like, Oh God, awesome. And now it's like over here. Right. So it's, this is like never ending work, but my, you know, what feels so compelling to me is like, if I being able to like actually living this out and showing like, Oh my gosh, if you, if you really do the work to think on purpose, like there's really nothing you can't, there's no result you can't create. Right? Like that's it. It's just showing that that's possible. I'm not solving, you know, world peace and I'm certainly not going to win a Nobel prize, but that gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm like, this is exciting because I think about my kids and I think about my clients, right. And how much pain a lot of my clients are in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being able to show them like, it's really possible mm -hmm. to create whatever result you want, you just have to manage your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. That's the process. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Well, that's a good place that's to end. Place this, to we can go on for hours for sure. So continue the conversation back in the platform. And um, thank you all for showing up. Thank you, Sasha. That was awesome. Oh, so fun. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you choosing to spend your time with us. If you love this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe.